Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And this is uh, yet another one of our sort of casual Friday minisodes. Yeah. We talked this week about Frida Bellinfanta, who is to me a remarkable and inspiring woman to talk about for a number of reasons. One of the things, though, that I really, really wanted to mention in this this little minisode is the way she felt about her own sexual identity, because it's unusual and wonderful in that she, unlike many people, we often hear stories of people who realize that they are not heterosexual or that they just feel different and they can't identify why, and they go through a period of of questioning and self-doubt and trying to figure out if there is something wrong with them or if there is, you know, why are they different from everyone else? Frida never seemed to experience this. She just accepted, this is how I feel about other people. This is who I'm attracted to. This is my place in the world. And she just didn't go through that, that, you know, difficult journey of self-doubt about any of it, which is astonishing for a woman in the early 1900s. Yeah, when she was living especially. Yeah, she, I mean, even when, uh, there's the documentary that I, I mentioned in the show, and it was one of my sources called But I Was a Girl, and it's about her life. And they interview her sister Renee in that. And her sister is also very like, oh, yeah, everybody was in love with her. Didn't matter if they were a boy or a girl. All the kids just flocked to her. And it seems like none of them ever felt any sort of, like, oddness about her being a lesbian. It was never something they even talked about or questioned. They just were like, yeah, that's Frida. Yeah. Which is really, uh, like I said, it it was refreshing and surprising. And also, I I wish everyone walked with that level of self-confidence. Sure, yeah. I, I, you know, I know uh, because you were the person who researched this episode. So, like, you have more of the in-depth knowledge than I do at this point. One of the things that came up early in the episode is how when she asked her father about religion, her her dad was basically like, uh, read a lot and figure out what makes sense to you rather than trying to, like, prescribe any particular thing. And so I wonder if that uh, kind of mindset was colored all through their family life and their upbringing, which I think would have made it a little easier for a person to have that level of self-awareness and and not as much, like, internal conflict about it. Yeah, 100%, I think. Um, she mentioned in, in her long-form interview she did late in life a similar thing where she was talking to a woman who had a different ideology from her, and they were trying to understand each other's point of view. And she was asking the woman questions, and the woman was like, well, I was told blah, 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 blah. And she was like, no, I don't want to hear what you were told. I want to know what you think and feel about this subject. Mm -hmm. Because to her, that was always what guided her in life, which I think was very much nurtured by both of her parents, but her father in particular. Like, you're smart enough. You can make your way in the world. How do you think or feel? That's perfectly valid, which is just... Again, it's a little bit mind-blowing. We don't meet many people in history that have this level of complete comfort with their their sexual identity so early on when it is counter to what society would tell you is normal. Right. Also, man, she was a cool lady. <laughs> I think about, she also mentioned at one point, um, it was another thing that didn't make it into the episode, that she recognized that she had a certain level of, like, addiction to danger. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was sort of what drove her. And she was like, I never wanted to, like, do illegal things for the sake of being a criminal, but I did want, I was perfectly comfortable doing illegal things if I thought it, I was doing something for what's right. Right. And, like, that was part of what drew her to the resistance, was she was like, great, I can get all of the adrenaline rush, and I also feel like I am working for a very worthy cause. Cool. And she talked about how music was sort of her one outlet that didn't require her to kind of brush up against danger to feel very um, alive and emotional because to her music could convey everything a human could possibly feel and elevate it in a way that was really almost spiritual. Um, But that she did recognize she had this tendency to just be drawn to difficulty almost like a moth to flame, which is also interesting. Yeah, she's fascinating. Oh, she's the best. Um, Yeah, when I got to that whole thing where she's talking about their mission to set fire to the records office, uh, this goes back to what I was saying initially, that, you know, she one of the the other co-conspirators involved in that was a gay man, and he did not clearly grow up with the level of comfort with his identity that she had. And she was like, he was so capable and smart, and he just needed somebody to tell him, you're as good as anybody else to become somebody really amazing. And it it was interesting to me that not only did she grow up with that, like, completely, yep, I am who I am, I know who I am, and I'm good with it attitude, but she recognized when other people were lacking it and needed her help, Mm -hmm. which is sort of beautiful. It is. Anyway, she's spectacular. Yeah. Frida forever. (laughs) Tracy, I really, really loved talking to the Chutzpah team uh, this week because I... As I mentioned in those interviews, I am so charmed by Frida Belenfante, and it's just lovely to get to talk to other people similarly charmed by her story. Oh, for sure. Uh, And also people who are working on a project that I think is so important and such an important part of how we can teach history, especially considering we have reached that sort of critical moment related to the Holocaust when there are not that many survivors left. Right, Um, right. Enough years have passed that the people that made it through and lived very full and wonderful lives uh, have have passed on from old age in, in many cases. So it's uh, really, really lovely, I think, to have such a unique way to commemorate their lives and, and to be able to share that story, especially with kids who, you know, do not have the benefit um, of, you know, perhaps meeting with and speaking with survivors in person, uh, which will shift your perception of that whole thing in a big way for sure if if uh, anybody out there has known anyone who has has been through that it makes it made it so much more real for me the first time I met a survivor mm-hmm. and the way that happened was very random and it was when I was working in a salon oh yeah and we had um we had a number of clients that uh, we I worked in a salon here in the South where we had a clientele that consisted a lot of uh, mature women who would come in every week and get their shampoo set and get their hair done. Uh, And that was just part of their weekly ritual. And there was this one woman that I had known for, you know, at that point, like probably a year and a half, two years. And I saw her every week. And one day she was paying for her service and her as she handed over her, I don't remember if it was cash or a card or whatever, but her sleeve wrote up and I saw her number. Right. And it was just, it sounds so silly, but I had never met anyone who had been a survivor up to that point. I was in my early 20s still, but it really 
was very sobering. And then she and I talked a lot, and she also had a sister-in-law that also came to the salon who had also been through it. It turned out I did not know that there were several women in that group that came every single week and got their hair done that were all survivors, and they all kind of had their own little community here in Atlanta. Uh, So it was, I did not ever press them on it, but on occasion we would discuss some of it as we got to know each other better and became closer. Um, And two of them ended up coming to my wedding, but it, it really did sort of, uh, to me, that's one of those touchstone moments in my life where I realized that history is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know it intellectually, but to know it kind of in your soul is a little bit of a different thing. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the many reasons that I want to champion this project that the the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh does. Because it's so, again, amazing and important. But also, like, we we cannot afford to lose that history. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think most of my experiences were in a more formal setting. So it's like somebody coming to our school to speak. Um, And then when I was in college, I had a class that I think I've talked about in maybe a behind the scenes before that was half honors students and half uh, people who were from the Center for Creative Retirement at my university. Um, And so the the class was specifically talking about one specific year post-World War II. And so it was these students who were in college, mostly traditionally aged college students, in the class with uh, with people who had lived through this history and were now taking some classes as uh, in, the, in their retirement. And so that was a much smaller group. And somebody came to speak to the class, which was only like 20 of us, instead of us all being an all in a big auditorium. Um, so that was like a bit of a more personal experience. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, I it it saddens me that we are losing that oral history being readily accessible from survivors uh, as we age past it. But uh, I'm I'm glad and very thankful for the the survivors who have taken time to speak with us. Also, I feel like we should shout out to Michael Bornstein who was on the show mm-hmm. at one point after he wrote his book about um, his experience in Auschwitz as a child. I can't imagine what it is to live through that and then retell it. Right. Uh, that's got to have its own weight and gravity and and pain and difficulty because even most survivors lost a great deal. Uh, so I'm so thankful. And I love how passionate Marcel and Jackie and Birdie were about making sure that these stories are not just told, but told in a way that is new and fresh and engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, we were lucky enough to get a rough of Frida's story as they were working on it. And it's told in such an interesting way in terms of juxtaposing the language of music with a visual narrative. And I cannot wait for people to see it. So I hope everyone orders it and enjoys it because I also just love comic books <laughs> and comic book art. And I like any time that it's used in a really interesting way. So uh, again, we're going to thank them a million times over. And I hope that you guys enjoyed those interviews. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 